welcome to another episode of Poetry Says Everyone. I'm Alice. Thanks for listening in. I've been making this podcast for a couple of years now and every now and again I end up in a situation that sort of was like, what if one day I could do that? And uh, doing this interview I got to go to Ali Elizade's house and chat with him about uh, his writing and how he thinks about his work and what he thinks about poetry. And if you just said that to me in 2012 when I first picked up his book Ashes in the Air from Paper Chain in Monica in Canberra, um, I would have been a little bit surprised that that was on the cards for me. It was yeah, really mind-bending to be sitting there chatting with Ali. And as I say to him at the start, that book, Ashes in the Air, was a real turning point for me. It was a bit of a revelation in terms of what was allowed, quote-unquote, in terms of poetry writing. But it's interesting because uh, pretty much immediately he talks about the way he sees that book now and uh, how things have sort of changed for him and the anxieties involved in actually writing that book. And from there, we dig in to, I think, some of the darker corners of what it is to be a poet in Australia in terms of things like hype, popularity, praise, influence, power, kind of the unhealthy sides to being a poet and the scene, quote-unquote, which does come up quite a bit when I talk to poets on this podcast. Ali acknowledges that some of the things he says might sound cynical, and I wouldn't expect you, I wouldn't expect every single person who listens to agree with every single thing he says. That would be weird if that's the kind of podcast I was putting out where everyone agrees with everything all the time. Um, Yeah, I think it's important to at least consider or acknowledge these kinds of less positive sides to what it is to be a a poet and a writer in Australia. And I think maybe to add to what Ali says here, I would really recommend reading his poem Off Kilter, which is published in Cordite. Um, I think that poem speaks quite directly to a lot of the concerns that he talks about here. But I also think it's really important to keep in mind that Ali's just published a book on Joan of Arc. He read for us at Sporting Poets a poem entitled Hope, which I will link to, and I, I really recommend you listen to that as well. So, um, yeah, yeah, we go into the darker corners, but uh, I think it's important to remember that there's, there's light there as well. And yeah, I just can't wait to share this one with you. So let's get to it. Yeah, this is a really strange moment for me because I bought Ashes in Air in maybe 2012. Okay. um, When I was still living in Canberra. And... Reading that book for me was like a real kind of uh, sort of sharp turn in what I thought was possible with a poetry book. Mm. The directness of it really kind of shocked me into um, or out of, I guess, this idea that I had to be very obscure and fancy and uh, 
not say what I wanted to say, mm, <laughs> basically. Mm, mm. Um, and I'm wondering, it, it was 2011 that it came out. Mm. I'm wondering how you think about it now, sort of mm. six, seven years on. Well, I'm really happy to, um, that you say that because that's, that's, that's exactly one of my problems with it, is that I don't think it is direct enough. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. Mm. Um, because, I, I, I mean, there are things that um, I wanted to say at the time, but for one thing, I didn't exactly know what they were. I think I know, I have a clear idea of what they might be now. Mm. Um, but I think I was still kind of struggling with the idea of, you know, proper poetry, or whatever that means. And I, and I think today that doesn't mean, you know, meter and rhyme and whatever. I think that means exactly as you said, a kind of an artistic or artificially ex styled, quote unquote, obscure, suggestive language, absolutely minimalist and everything else. Mm. That I think is as much a burden on poets today as like meter and rhyme used to be 100 mm. years ago. Yeah, because I think that's really true. Yeah, when I wrote this book, I was so anxious. I'm thinking, oh my God, will, you know, the cooler, more important, you know, generation of 68 types like my book. And that was the real anxiety, and mm -hmm. which I don't have today anymore. So yeah. I think that that's, that's, um, that's probably something that, you know, I, 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 I'm kind of critical of about the book. I, I, I had to be too conscious of being, you know, sufficiently modernist and modern and minimalist and not too expressive mm -hmm. and and all of that contained really my voice had to be very contained and wow. I, yeah yeah that's amazing that you said i'm really surprised mm. and kind mm. of shocked that that was a concern for you i mean i yeah, feel that right. i feel that burden now yeah, trying yeah. to put my own manuscript together yeah, i'm like yeah are the people who I look up to going to think this is good? <laughs> Probably <laughs> Which not. Which is the worst possible way to approach yeah, it, writing a book that actually represents mm, you as a person. Mm, yeah. I mean, look, no one is going to... Uh, ultimately, I think... I was just talking to a friend on the phone this morning and we are kind of joking about, you know, what it means or to get recognition or whatever as a writer. And, and he said... He made a good point. He said, look, people will acknowledge and like your work when it is in their interest to do that. And it might sound like a cynical thing to say, but that's actually at a subconscious or ideological level. That's what most people do. You know, if I say, you know, I might watch any given number of movies or TV shows, say, but I don't actually openly publicly say I like something <laughs> unless unless by saying that I, I, I achieve something, you know, say I prove that I'm progressive if I say I like The Handmaid's Tale. Whereas I'm not going to admit that I like, you know, 80s hair metal because that makes me look bad, for example. I would disagree. Really? <laughs> I think that's cool. <laughs> I have no idea. It's cool. Okay. But, but you know, I mean, that's the thing. Like, um, yeah. 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 No, you're right. There's a lot of stuff. And actually, when I admit to people, like one of the things that mm. I love that I feel kind of in two minds about is um, I adore Korean pop music. And part of me when I say that is like, that's really naff, what mm. an uncool thing to say. Mm. But the other part of me is like, yeah, but it's Korean and maybe like uh -huh. you get a few cool points Multi because it's yeah, Korean. Culturally sensitive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's true in, in, I mean, it must be true, as true with poetry as oh, it is with music. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, for the last 30 years of 
however many, no, well, let's do exaggeration, 20 years, I think, 20, 25 years that I've been aware of this thing called Australian poetry. Um, I've seen, it's really been interesting to see, you know, even though it's a very small scene and everything else, but there are, there is, there can be hype. There can be even popularity. Mm. There can certainly be like, you know, praise or veneration even. Mm. And it's been really interesting to see what kinds of poems or poets have received that and which ones don't. Yeah. You know, how some poets are perennially uncool, even if they try their hardest, yeah. you know, and yeah. how someone, some people just become really fashionable suddenly. You know, I remember when um, Dransfield, you know, which is a, which is a perfectly good poet, but you know, it's, you know, but he is like many other poets of his generation. And I, I used to read him in the, as an undergrad uni student, which was fine. But then suddenly seeing the sort of a bit of an explosion, mm. uh, I thought, oh, well, that's a bit odd, you know, why isn't that interesting that suddenly he just has all these imitators, he's got a, you know, fan, fan page on Facebook and everything else and every other, every other poet at that time was trying to sort of say, yeah, I'm reading Transfield or I'm writing like Transfield or whatever. Mm. And around the same time, um, publisher that I used to publish with called Transit Lounge, they put out a uh, collected works of Vicky Viticus. It was kind of comparable, you know, of the same generation, druggy, whatever, you know. And um, and I thought the publisher of that book, and even myself, I thought, we thought, yeah, this is, this is going to take off, you know, there's going to be a revival of the cult of Viticus. Australia's old own Sylvia Plath, maybe, I'm not sure. It didn't happen. Mm. And what do you think is mm. is there anything you could point to between those two poets that explains that? Look, I, I mean, I think there is sort of like in that particular, I think in that particular case, um, the sort of the influential figures, if you like, and we can talk about this, but in Australian poetry for individuals, uh, it is possible for individuals to have a quite a lot of influence in a way that, to be frank, may not be very healthy. And I think at any rate, those individuals um, who do, do go, some of them go out of their way to exert influence, um, they, they chose to sort of ignore this thing. I mean, I remember of Vicky Viticus's own generation of poets, the only one who really acknowledged the book being released was Pam Brown. I think she wrote a review, if I'm not mistaken, which wasn't published. Um, I wrote something about it and was was published. But it was kind of interesting to see a lot of people of uh, Viticus's own generation for a very, very many number of reasons, including, you know, Viticus having stolen their things to pay for her drug habit. I mean, she was, from what I understand, not the nicest person in the world. Mm. But so if people had known her personally, were probably reluctant to then you know, 10 or how many years after her death to sort of say, yes, let's, you know, discuss this forgotten voice of Australian poetry. But mm. for whatever reason, they chose not to. Uh, you know, I mean, we can talk about, I mean, you know, some of those individuals, if you like, but I think the bigger problem is the sort of power of these individuals. Um, and I think the problem for that exists is partly because we ignore the fact that there actually is a public of poets and poetry readers and amateur poetry writers because we ignore that we think poetry is such a small clique of you know uh, avant-gardists or whatever we then end up 
imitating the worst aspects of like historical avant-garde of 1920s and the charismatic figures of leaders or gurus or whatever, which I think is really um, um, pernicious actually mm. for Australian poetry. And I think that actually goes against the current, which is the and to me the reality of Australian poetry is that there are perhaps tens, maybe maybe even close to a hundred thousand people in Australia who either write, read, buy, edit, go to poetry readings, etc., or somehow conversant and engage with poetry in this country. I think it's a pretty big number of people, and I know that because of my teaching because of judging poetry prizes where you receive so many submissions. Yeah, I bet. Ah, and so many of them are so good, but they are poets you would not have heard of. Mm. Um, so on that basis, I think the fact that we nevertheless heap praise and recognition on a few individual poets, you know, it's kind of interesting that, you know, these opinion makers and these people exist. Um, because I also write fiction and I also know a little bit about other art forms, it seems to me that certainly compared to the bigger literary scene in Australia, the power of individuals in the poetry scene is is quite um, extreme. Yeah, and I think as you're saying it, I'm kind of realising that it is a case that we, we give, we cede power. Mm to those people very readily mm. and as you say just overlook mm. or ignore the fact that there is a much I, I agree with you I think there's a much larger audience than we whoever we is mm. however you want to define mm. that we but I think there is a certain uh, cohort of people who go oh well poetry is a small world there's only there's only a certain amount to go around mm. and if I want to get mine I need to do this and I need to impress this person, ignoring the fact that you have all these these really rich communities available to you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They are, aren't they? I mean, when you go to poetry readings, especially in Melbourne, you just see such a huge number of people go every just about every night of the week. I mean, not hundreds every night, but you know, when you when you just keep an eye on the sort of sort of multitude of events and and workshops and creative writing courses and people who submit to journals and people who self-publish books and people who put their poems online i mean it, it sets a lot of people mm. and and then you think you compare that to a very small um, select or you know set of recognized people and the power they wield and i think that's something that i was um, you know, I was very conscious of when I was trying to, you know, get started. Mm. And it used to frustrate me a lot, but I felt like I had to play the game. And then I sort of did play the game. And, uh, and now I kind of feel very detached from. Um, and I, I'm, I'm very, very disenchanted by all of that. Um, yeah, I wondered about that because looking at uh, the work that you have published in book form mm. uh, since Ashes in the Air that there if I'm right there isn't actually another poetry no, collection. No, there isn't. Yeah. No. But it's not that you haven't been writing poetry because yeah. it's really beautiful poetry up of Ben Cordite and um, you read an incredible poem at Sporting Poets and so I, I mm. assume that you you still write poetry. Yeah I do write poetry. I mean I still love it and and, and you know I, I've got a I've got a manuscript that I'm sort of working on on and off. Um, 
but but I think that you know and the, the concern that I have like compared to my other work as a fiction writer or as a you know um, literary critic or a philosopher or, or an academic or whatever the difference is not that there's so few people who read poetry I mean that's what often we often hear isn't it that you know our poetry is small and that's the problem yeah. we've got to make it bigger yeah frankly it's big enough say Melbourne's philosophy scene is smaller but I have to be honest it's more rewarding partly because it is not dominated by a few figures perhaps it's it, perhaps it's the genre of say philosophy or fiction writing but I don't quite think it is I think it's very specific to the way poetry in Australia has developed and the ways in which people have thought about it I think one of the biggest problems in Australia today one of the biggest problems, other than global warming, it's like, <laughs> and one of the biggest yeah. problems in Australian literature today, I think, if poetry is a part of that uh, bigger body, is that, um, yeah, we have not been sufficiently critical of the fetishistic power of a few figures with a lot of aura. And, and that's something that has sort of like crept up on Australian literature. And it's kind of funny being on, say, on a various um, programming committees or whatever, and being asked, said, you know, you know, oh, we want to have a poetry event as part of this festival. Who should we invite? Mm. And you know, one suggests names or, or, or ideas or whatever, and it ends up being the same people every time. And and it's kind of funny that um, even when new new figures emerge. They're really, you know, part of, again, the same sort of ways of thinking. And, and again, those figures very quickly become, become this sort of idols. And it's, it's, it's not helpful. Mm. Um, again, comparatively, I mean, that happens in all, you know, uh, post-romantic capitalist culture industries. We have celebrities, which I hate. We do have, you know, small celebrities in the small poetry scene. But I think, um, you know... That still it doesn't delegitimize. Despite the say the fame of uh, Taylor Swift, you still have people enjoying doing their own songs on YouTube. Mm. That doesn't make them feel little and insignificant. Whereas I think in Australian poetry, it really is possible for, for people to feel small and insignificant if they don't get the recognition of, you know, an important poet, or if they don't get published in an important journal. Or if yeah. they don't get published by a recognizable press, you know, and it's, it's to me, it's to me, it seems to me quite absurd, to be honest. It seems the joy of making poetry or the use value of making poetry or whatever you want to call it has been uh, very greatly subordinated to uh, some kind of a public desire to, to make a good impression on these few idols. Mm. Do you see any... Um do you see any people in, or any communities actively going against that in mm. ways that you see? Not effective? at all. Not really? at all. I think Australian poetry is, I mean, I think, again, I don't know exactly what poetry is like elsewhere, so I can't just say it's Australian. My understanding a little bit of American poetry scene is that it is quite similar. They have their own deified figures and they, you know, shower them with annual prizes and they must get taught at universities you know again this cult of personality is really what i'm, I'm quite um, 
sick of, you know. I, th I think if we look at other art forms, let's look at fiction. I mean, it's full of this cultish behavior too. But ultimately, as much as I'm very critical of the, oh, you know, production of fiction under capitalism, etc., um, you know, someone like Hilary Mantel is still going to have to write a good book, mm -hmm. good in comparison to her previous Henry VIII, you know, Anne Boleyn cycle of books. She's still going to have to write a good one of those for her readers. You know, there is a sort of um, honest exchange value here. And she's still going to have to produce work. Whereas I think, uh, you know, perhaps this is about the value of the work itself. I think part of the problem ultimately is that in Australia and perhaps elsewhere, people don't really read poetry. Even poets themselves don't really read poetry in order to enjoy it or understand it or get something out of it. They often do it, and this is going to sound very ungenerous, but they often do it to see who is writing what, who is getting published, um, and you know whose career is it moving forward and in what way that might affect my career. And when I say that to some people, they think I'm being really horrible. But, but I, I don't know. I think that's what I see primarily. Uh, well, that definitely resonates with the way that I started reading and mm, writing poetry, mm, for sure. Because mm. I started writing um, 10 years ago without having read basically anything. Mm, and then mm. I picked up the best 2007 mm. and thought, who's in here? What are they doing? Yeah. How can I do the same thing as them? And where are they being published? And how do I get into mm. those journals? I wasn't reading for the joy of it. Yeah. And it actually has taken me quite a while to, because, and I think you talk about this so beautifully in uh, this poem, Off Kilter, which is in Cordite 2016. Yeah. That poem is yeah. ridiculous in a great way. Yeah. Um, but you kind of have to get to this point of almost exhaustion with yourself and yeah. your own striving. Yeah. You're like, it doesn't actually go anywhere. Yeah. Because even if you were to get these top prizes and win all the money, and get published mm. by the great mm. presses. Mm. What's at the end of that? I don't know. Well, well yeah. an unhealthy, sick art scene, I think. Right. Even despite the fact that, again, there's so many people who write, read, genuinely like, would like to learn more about poetry. We end up with a sort of a bickering, infighting, uh, backstabbing, narcissistic clique at the top. And I think that's unfortunately what we have now. And, and you know, maybe, maybe I'm saying we need some sort of a revolution, but there's definitely a sort of a bizarre kind of ruling class in poetry. And I think that, you know, um, we are complicit in it. I mean, exactly, for example, that those anthologies by Black Ink, you know, the best Australian poetry, I think they're poison. I mean, I, I don't send this stuff to them. I've, in my own little way, I've boycotted them because they create, they cannot create anything but a culture of careerism or contribute to a culture of careerism and, um, and this sort of shallowness and com competitiveness. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how many general readers are converted to poetry because of these anthologies? Frankly, probably none, but I'm happy to do the study and survey and find out. But how many, how many poets heartbroken are when they're, when, they're, when they're not included in these anthologies? 
how much self-aggrandizing goes on when somebody else, somebody is included in these anthologies and how's that helping the art form in any way mm. um, you know so what does it what does an art scene look like that is healthy do mm. you think well yeah i mean i think i mentioned the fiction writing scene which it it really isn't i mean the problem with fiction at the moment is that you know, it's actually the quality of writing is not very good. So I'm very, when I'm very critical of the social relations of poetry in fiction, I think the problem is to do with sort of aesthetics. But, but, but I don't know. I mean, I, I think about like you know, this this is very idealistic. But when I was an undergrad uni student, and in our little university campus, uh, you know, we had little platforms that that like we had this this event every every other friday called friday club when you know students got together and got drunk or whatever but there was a microphone anyone could get up and read their ridiculous poem or do their you know uh, dance or play a song or whatever it was it was really open and and i think that that was um uh, that was that sort of that's definitely how i started mm. um as a writer or as as an artist of any kind uh, it gave me the confidence, but sort of gave me a sense that this is um, this is um, there is a there is a real personal use. Something I do on a Friday now that is not related to my university studies, that is not related to my career aspirations. It is just something that I do for myself, for my own soul, or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and I think that that's that's the really this that's the sort of basic foundation of a healthy art scene. I think that potential is definitely in Australian poetry. It's definitely there. Um, if it wasn't there, I wouldn't you know uh, notice its absence uh, or or the fact that it's sort of being suppressed. Uh, it's definitely there. Uh, but what what a, what would a healthier version of this look like? I think we would have a lot less to be honest. Um, um, awards and 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 occasions for fetishizing and celebrating individuals. We would probably have much more collaboration and cooperation and less kind of monopolistic ownerships of the tiny little means of production, whatever they might be, like little presses or editorship of journals or whatever. Mm. Um, I, I think I think things would be generally much more collective and communal. Um, so, something, something along those lines. But at the very least, I think we would care less about the opinion, right, and of be, other poets, right, and be yeah. more interested in, like you say, that immediate kind of. Yeah, I did this. I wrote this for me first. Absolutely, or even you're even the general reader. I mean, this is something again. I'm not a big fan of like uh, mass-produced popular fiction for all sorts of reasons. But at the very least, the writer of Fifty Shades of Grey or whatever can say, look. I don't care what other fiction writers say. Maybe I don't know. I assume because hey, I've got these readers who send me appreciative, you know, fan mail, and I think even that's a bit healthier than me worrying about what will another poet make of my work and will I be slandered or attacked by another poet mm. in their review of my book. It just kills yeah. the creativity immediately. Absolutely. But as you're talking, yeah. like, I'm thinking so much about the spoken word mm. scene and I'm not mm. a super fan of like dividing mm. poetry communities by using that term and I'm sure that 
people who do spoken mm. word, quote unquote, aren't either. But um, last night I went to an event called Girls on Key um, in Northgate. Mm. And mm. the whole night was so... Um, so it's a, a reading with an open mic and two mm. features. Mm. And it's not exclusively uh, for women and, and non-binary people, but it is kind of heavily skews that way. Mm. And um, look... I'm not going to say that every single poem blew me away, mm. but what did blow me away was the passion of mm. the people who read and the the immediacy mm. of their kind of effect on the audience. You know, when people start to mm. click, mm. Mm. I love that so yeah. much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think, I mean, I'll give you one little example, and I'm very critical of, of that those kinds of scenes as well because the pressure on performance and some performance poets or spoken word fundamentalists do go on a little bit too much about how what they're doing is greater than boring old page poetry and I don't like that but 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 I remember like from the um you know this is a long time ago but in the sort of the pub there was a few pub poetry readings the weekly ones in Melbourne in various pubs where they would like they would you know have have the open mic and then have feature spots exactly as you say but there was an unacknowledged, um, um, it was an unofficial acknowledgement or an understanding that if you show up simply and perform on the open mic for a given number of weeks, then you will be given a feature spot. And it was really, I mean, that, that kind of did result in someone like Dorothy Porter and me being feature poets in a given week, for example, you know. Which, which would not have happened otherwise, but simply because of loyalty to a scene or something like that. Right, yeah, supporting that. Yeah, no. support, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think the quality, the question of quality is very important here, obviously. You know, I'm not a, I, I do believe in the existence of something called good art, but, but that's much more difficult to define. And I have my own definition of it. I've just written a book about it. So I think it is possible to define. But I think this uh, assumption that, you know, we need some sort of a selection criteria to keep out the mediocrities and praise the geniuses. I mean, unfortunately, that is just not the case under in, in our societies today. I sincerely believe the most praised artists, poets, etc., are some of the worst. I, I, I do see my students' works coming out, and I can assure you some of my students write much better poems than the poets who win the Prime Minister's Poetry Award. By what, and I'm a philosopher of art, so I actually do have very strict, very strict and detailed, you know, rubrics and criterion for talking about what makes good art. Mm. And, and I do think that when somebody is praised and wins awards and whatever, they often do it because of their status and because of their identity today and not because of their work anyway. How do you mean identity? Who they are. Who they are, you know. Often it has to do with how long, it's a sort of a question of loyalty too, but I guess if you seem like you've been around for a long time and gee, it's your time to get an award, it's a, you know, career, career, what do they call the Oscars when people don't win an yeah, accomplishment award? Yeah, I'm thinking award? like, uh, yeah, I know exactly what you mean, I'm trying to think of the word too, it's kind of like a Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep type thing, it's like, right. I'm not going to give you an award for anything specific, but like, you've been you're just great, yeah, you've been, yeah, that's yeah. right, yeah. I think that's how Oscar says he won it eventually when they said, look, you know, 
We, we should have given it to you when yeah. you were actually making good movies, but we didn't. Yeah. Now that you're making crap movies, but hey, you should have been given an Oscar. So there you yeah. go. Have one. Lifetime achievement. Lifetime achievement, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I think that a lot of literary awards um, in Australia, lifetime achievement awards anyway. Um, occasionally, you know, something happens for ideological reasons. For example, it's assumed that a certain identitarian group has not been sufficiently represented. Then they will get uh, representatives from that group will get the awards. That's not okay by me at all. I think if we have any commitment to egalitarianism or Marxism, yeah. which I do, we have to be absolutely against that sort of thing. Um, and unfortunately, it happens. And gosh, if you speak against it, you get called a racist, etc. But I'm sure um, that no one would want to win an award because they were part mm, of a group that a more privileged, powerful group thought mm, hadn't been recognised mm, enough. And they're like, that's horrible. I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. Well. I can assure you I wouldn't. But yeah. but that's not the case with everyone. I mean, I think, when, especially when money, big quantities of money come into the equation. I mean, if one were to observe the amounts of money being invested on... Um, well, invested, that's probably what it is in a way. It is some kind of a capital investment into literary awards in Australia has certainly gone up. There are now more and more money being spent on literary awards. And I think that, you know, this serious money. I mean, frankly, if came someone came up to me and said, Ali, we're going to give you 30,000 bucks for being the best Persian writer in Australia who gives us an understanding of Persian culture, would I say no? I mean, I would I would want to say no. I would say, how dare you reduce me to an ethnic stereotype? I'm a universal citizen, etc. But that's 30,000 bucks. Yeah. I, I, will, I will look, to be honest, if I'm feeling financially okay at that time, I'll probably say no. I, I don't know. I don't enter awards anyway because I think they're horrible, but... Uh, but I think especially the identitarian ones are particularly humiliating and offensive. That said, the culture industry depends on them. Libraries often don't order books in unless they have won literary awards. Teachers think that only those books are worth considering for putting on um, reading lists. So, you know, it's a, it's a pretty um, problematic culture. But I think it is still possible to break out of that. But to break out of it, we have to return to some kind of a foundational of theory of why art is good mm. and i think if we if we start thinking along those lines we might you know be able to revive a healthier uh, mm. art scene as opposed to what to me seems like a really a sick clique of sycophants and careerists um, who are frankly and uh, toxic to be around it, it seems to me that one factor that would help and this is something that's come up a couple mm. of times in interviews, especially talking about awards, is um, just having the financial means for that not to matter. Like you mm. say, if mm. you're financially secure, you can yeah. say that. Yeah. Yeah. You cannot bother to enter the yeah. awards. Yeah. And so that then brings me back to the question I'm always grappling with, mm. which is the question of time. Mm. Because to make that money you will probably be spending at least half, if not the majority of your mm. working hours Absolutely. working for some cash. So then where do you find the time to actually have those moments of joy and, and creating mm. for creating's sake? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's the that's like the key question, I think, the question of time, because um, it is a sort of perversion of time or 
uh, that that allows you know the accumulation of capital. You know that's the, that's the whole point of Marx's Capital. The book is precisely that that by making by extending the work hour, the workday, sorry, into a greater number of hours, money becomes more money. Money becomes capital. I mean that is the foundation of of the society in which we live. But getting people to do more work over a shrinking um, quantity of time. I mean, we're all losing time. That's, there's no question about it. Um, that, so that's, that's a genuine struggle. I don't, I don't think it's something that I can sort of say, oh, gee, it's a matter of my personal time management. If I manage my time better, then I will find time to write a novel while holding down a job. I don't think that's, I don't think that's like that. Um, I, think, I think it's a real sort of a political struggle to, to be able to say, look, you know, these are the hours that I work, and outside of those hours, I'm not going to work. Mm. You know, one of the really pernicious and evil aspects of digital technology, and Marx talks about it, obviously not digital technology, but machines and technology in general, and says, look, capitalists will tell you that this stuff will make work easier. This will stuff make this stuff will make you help, uh, uh, will help you, you know, do things quicker. But in reality, it doesn't. And he, he explains it in great detail. He says, look, the more technologies advance, the more time is spent by workers for which they are paid less money. And that is exactly what's happening. For example, with my job, I know that, um, you know, I spend a hell of a lot more time reading student emails than I would have seeing them face to face. So, you know, this is, this is how my time is lost. I think if you make very conscious and deliberate decisions which we have to constantly reinforce, with our employ with our employers and we have to really fight this and you know in my case for example at university i have to be very vigilant about this and even in my personal life you know i have to really really um guard the time that i spend writing mm. um I, I think i think that's a very sort of basic immediate solution but but i think you know ultimately um yeah it's 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 just there's just no easy there's no easy answer i mean uh you know because because i think society is against against us that everything you know requires more and more and more time to do now mm. you know like it take, takes a lot longer now to travel even because of the worst public transport system or whatever and you know etc yeah. yeah well I, I i do ask pretty much every interviewer to talk about yeah. the time question and yeah yeah i can say definitively that no one has come up with the answer so uh, don't feel sorry like <laughs> but yeah i, I want to try and bring the conversation around mm. to the topic of hope mm. which is the title of the poem that you read at sport yeah Pops. yeah yeah um i suspect well listening back to that poem yesterday i found a really interesting exercise because I, I know when you read it I felt like this is what I need to hear right now I felt like you know even on that particular day I can't remember mm. what was happening in the news specifically but it was just like and I think everybody there just felt like mm. oh, I need to hear this okay. um, and one of the lines in it is so the title is hope and it's a poem about hope um, and one of the lines in, in it is, how do I convince you that I'm not mad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I was wondering if you could sort of talk a little bit about that in terms of, mm. you know, 
you're obviously very in tune with <coughs> the challenges of being a creative person in the modern world mm. and just living in the modern world. But you still have hope. <laughs> I mean, you've written a poem titled Hope. Yeah. Oh, look, I, I've got a lot of hope because cause I guess I've sort of, um, uh, in my personal life, I've found ways to do some of these things, you know, to sort of hold down a job, however precariously, and manage to sort of find time to write. And I think that's, that's a great story. You know, I'm, I'm amazed that I, I'm, I'm really amazed that I can do it. Now, it's, again, you know, to go back to the question of time, it's not easy. I'll have to be up until 2, around 2 a.m. last night to finish rereading something. Mm. And, and as, you know, um, like, it's not, it's a constant struggle. But, um, but, but I think, so that, that's kind of in my personal life, I think, there's been, there's been a lot of misery and despair. But I think that that's been, there have been, you know, moments of hope and happiness as well. But, but I think, Broadly speaking, I mean, one question is like, you know, is there hope for art? Is art doomed to, you know, a slow but sure death because of everything we've talked about, because of the weird sort of fetishistic demands of the culture industries or the general kind of degradation of life under sort of neoliberal capitalism where we are all just being reduced to really hapless consumers with more and more casualized work we can barely pay the bills and yet we still have to buy the latest electronic gadget because we just must mm. we go in debt i mean it's a pretty miserable life marx has this lovely phrase towards the end of capital he calls about talks about workers and their families being crushed under the wheels of the juggernauts of capital and i think that's what's going to happen but exactly but as marx says capitalism will destroy itself it, it just will and it is it does it all the time you know and he uses hegelian logic he talks about the negation of the negation which is like the third law of the dialectic he says look something precisely because of its success will end up destroying itself and it will breed its own method of destruction mm. now, historically for marx the name of that method of destruction is the people or, or communism and I, I have to say, I, st I, I still maintain that's going to happen. I, I have no reason to think that that's not going to happen. It's just going to take a lot longer than we thought it would. Um, but So that, that gives me hope as well. But I think in terms of art, here and now, being a poet, what gives me hope? Um, I, I, I think that um, definitely like the fact that, you know, despite the best... <laughs> best best efforts of some of the sort of clicky idol worshippers that I mentioned poetry scene is expanding anyway it is it is yeah. newer people are coming in they're doing their thing I, I'm certainly seeing that at uh, the university level where one would assume that uni students universally hate poetry they don't I've been told many times you cannot teach them contemporary Australian poetry forget it it's not going to work and I do it and I've done it quite successfully, you know, based on sort of my definitions of success. I've done it and I keep doing it, you know. What do they enjoy? Um, I, I think that um, for one thing, they're actually always, often surprised, a lot of them, to find that there is such a thing as modern Australian poetry. Right. They, they feel that, you know, it's stuck in a... a, a it is still a kind of a traditional, you know, rhyming ballads, etc. So they're surprised to find that. They're also surprised when they actually 
enjoy it. It's humor. I mean, very basic at the very very basic level, but humor, for example, recognizability of place, um, irony, satire, anger. You know, the kind of emotions that they can get very uh, immediately from a poem. They're surprised to find that. Mm. And then, you know, if one spends a bit of time, and I think education is important, uh, one spends a bit of time with students, and, and education is a two-way thing. I mean, I learn from my students, and often they have to point out to me why they think a certain poem works for them. And I think, oh yeah, that's I didn't see it in that way. But I think uh, one kind of sees the ways that poetry can work for them, and it's, you know, very subjective. Uh, for it, for you know, depends changes from one student to another, but overall, I think past that sort of immediate affective level of you know, enjoying the emotions of the poems, students who connect deeper at a deeper level with our contemporary Australian poetry, do it because they understand that these poets are dealing with the same limitations and frustrations and a sense of alienation that they themselves are dealing with. Yeah. So it's not a sort of a positive celebration of a national identity that they can identify with, but it is nevertheless something to do with a national identity. Mm. Uh, a, a negative, you know, disparagement of national identity, if you like, but something to do with, with, na- with the nation anyway. And I do think that we have been too quick to dismiss the uh, importance of the nation. Uh, and I say this as a, as a Marxist internationalist, but, but, you know, even if one wants to be a Marxist, one has to say that, you know, the nation still is a very important modern institution and we have to sort of be mindful of it. And I think it has been to the detriment, I would say, of Australian literary, of literary studies in Australia to have somewhat downplayed the importance of the very uniquely historical questions to do with Australia's uh, past and so on. And I don't just mean, you know, colonialism and all of that. I mean, yes, that stuff should be addressed. But I mean deeper questions, for example, relationship with, um, you know, romanticism, if you like, the, and Australia or, or, or that sort of thing. You know, they, they used to be looked at. They used to be taught. They were like subjects of studies 20 or 30 years ago. But today, I think um, we have rushed uh, into wanting to see Australia belong to this thing called the world literature or to be seen as cosmopolitan or transnational or whatever. And I think and I think there's something to be gained from sort of taking a step back mm. and returning to the nation to the national question. Um, because I think that's something that resonates with students very strongly. And, you know, these are not patriotic flag, you know, waving students at all. I mean they they not. But they can really see that you know, at a very deep level, a lot of a lot of contemporary Australian poets are really struggling with being contemporary Australians. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I was thinking today, just sort of thinking about chatting to you that one of the things a poem can do is it can hold these huge questions, these huge ideas mm. of something like a nation or something mm. like hope or mm. despair. And it can grapple with those ideas in a way that is so um, so much harder in mm. nonfiction and even fiction in mm. some ways. And I, I don't really know why that is, but um, yeah. And, mm. and what I wanted to ask you about specifically on that is uh, the couplet, mm. because "Ashes in the Air" is written. 
primarily the vast majority of it mm. is, is written in couplets and I wonder if there's a specific reason that you mm. did that or if it's um... <coughs> mm. uh, yeah I mean I mean that's that's really HD um, Hilda Dulles right. so, oh. I mean I remember sort of like during my own development quote-unquote you know as I was as um, anxious as any other sort of younger poet in their early 20s desperately trying to be cool and groovy especially in the 90s the pressure to be postmodernist the pressure to not be a totalitarian by saying something explicitly in a poem because that would be an imposition of meaning and that would be totalitarianism that's the kind of thing they used to tell us in the 90s this is hence the no no lyric eye. No lyric eye, exactly. Oh, yeah. it's evil. Do not have the lyric eye. I mean, there are still people who advocate that, which I think, you know, whatever. But, um, and I think, yes, yeah, so I was really anxious. So I kind of got out of my way. I think before many people of my generation, perhaps, I was a, I was a groundbreaking pioneer. I started reading, you know, people like Olsen and others and uh, New York School or whatever. In the light, I read, I did my honest thesis about Olsen and Deleuze and Gattari, you, you know, all that kind of stuff, and and then I, but I have to, but, but I just didn't, you know, I could see the intellectual value of some of the things they were doing, but I knew that for my own pleasure, I wasn't reading that sort of poetry. I was reading Auden, I was reading others, and I loved Auden, and I think he's a fantastic poet. But, right. um, but I remember that song. I'm kind of attracted to very strong elements of American modernism, and you know. Patterson, whatever, um, Pound, um, etc. But I'm also sort of not quite sure if it's for me. And then I then I found HD's uh, trilogy, mm. and that really blew me away. And I kind of felt like, yep, she's doing exactly that. This is very modern, very succinct, very clearly modern use of language, written for a modern sensibility, but it's poetry proper. It's not, but it is actually enjoyable. It connects with me at a deeper uh, subjective level, which 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 is actually uh, engages my cognitive, um, you know, capacity as a human, and doesn't just ask me to marvel at its formal interestingness, you know, right. which I think a lot of modernism, is, postmodernism, certainly is. So I think, and and then HD, and there are kind of and 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 trilogies basically. Um, well, um, uh, the way it's published is three um, long sequences, and they're all written in these, in these uh, couplets, which she calls broken hexameters. I'm not really sure if hers or mine are, in any way, hexameters, but um, but basically, yeah. So they're pretty much directly uh, modeled on um, on her trilogy. Right. Yeah. I'm so glad I asked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's a really amazing book, HD's trilogy, and it's sort of like. Um, HD is another one of those I think great poets that I don't know why she's not hipper than she should be but mm. that may not be such a bad thing I certainly don't want to see an awful movie made about her which just focuses on her you know scandalous sexual mores and ignores her amazing commitments to being an artist because that's what would happen probably mm. if they made a movie about her so it's okay that she's not you yeah. know suddenly the subject of you know faddish interest but she would, you know, certainly, she's certainly a lot more interesting than, than many other poets of her time that have been deified. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, I would never have made that connection, so I'm yeah. really glad yeah. I asked about that. Well, what if, I don't know how you would feel about reading from Ashes in the Air, mm -hmm. 
Would you like I can do that. Sure, sure. I've got some marks, but yeah, okay. Is that okay? Oh, requests. <laughs> okay, let's see. Oh yeah, heater. Yeah, gosh, that's a that's an old one. Our democracy. <laughs> I like our democracy. Could I read that? Please. Yeah. Our democracy begins with a quote um, by Derrida. The very idea of the secular is religious through and through. Christian, really. Jacques Derrida. Our democracy. Religion? Not for us, thanks. Only this hallowed democracy. Damn those Muslim fundamentalists. Praise be to beer and patriotism. We have revealed the truth of everything. There is no God but online porn and football. Never doubt the omnipotence of the stock market and cosmetic surgery. Our hymns, national anthems, our ancestral spirits, stars upon the hills of Hollywood, the torches of the Enlightenment. So what if Buddhists have a word like that? We are, unlike them, indisputably modern. We sacrifice our time at the temple of work for salvation. My dollars, our only sin, the temporary plunge due to woman's nibbling on the forbidden fruit of equality. But we are all post-feminists now, and deify almighty women who look feminine and achieve like men. See how we adulate Nicole, Kylie, and our chosen princess Mary of Denmark. It's a bit dated, but I think we can <laughs> no, we can update there. it very easily. <laughs> Who is talking about saints? Our idols are hip symbols of perfection for emulation. No, that's not a cross and our beloved national flag. It's an icon of our heavenly British heritage. We're not like Muslim fanatics. We're a fully modern, unquestionably secular democracy. Thank you. No worries. I've been reading it. I think there's still a lot I like about that part, but I'm also you think, hmm, is there a yeah? I, I don't quite like their critique of the Britishness of Australia anymore. All right. Not not at all. I think I think uh, the the European heritage of Australia is actually a very important one in in, a, in the upcoming fight against capitalism. <laughs>